Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gustina. Joining us this week is the Executive Director of the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. Her name is Nick Rangel. Nick Rangel joined the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York in December 2022, the first Hispanic woman to lead the organization. Nick completed her Juris Doctorate at Albany Law School and her Master's Degree in Public Administration at Rockefeller College for Public Affairs and Policy. According to their mission statement at the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York, which is www.lasnny.org, the Legal Aid Society fights for fairness, dignity, and justice for those living in poverty and for a society which is inclusive and equitable for all. LASNY serves the constituents of 14 New York State Assembly districts and eight New York State Senate districts in Northeastern New York. They say, quote, we transform lives, build community, and empower people by using the law to address individual and systemic wrongs and inequities. Nick Rangel, welcome to the Capital Connection. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be here. Well, Nick, Obviously, this is a mission for you. I know you've worked in the Senate in the past. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to this position. Sure, I'd love to. So I have been interested in addressing systemic legal issues for a very long time. I sort of got involved in politics 20 years ago and had been an advocate for low-income communities. And um, I went to UAlbany for undergrad. I had a, a fantastic mentor in Professor Mort Schoolman. And uh, when I was trying to figure out what do I do with my life, he really encouraged me to go to law school um, and then from there, I kind of built this idea that I would do public policy, um, administration, and law and kind of combine those tools. And so the, I did a dual degree program at Rockefeller and Albany Law that tied together not just the understanding of how the law functions and, you know, the, the practice areas, but then on the policy side, how to understand the front lines impact of um, statutes, of laws, of decisions. And, and so those two things come together with this joint degree program, JDMPA. I also, in my MPA, took several courses in nonprofit management and financial management and these other pieces because I had this vision of someday running a nonprofit and then poof, here we are. I spent you know many years in the state Senate. What, uh, before I came to this position, I was the second deputy counsel for the state Senate majority. In that role, I was supervising about half of the legislative committees and those committees that I had were affecting the issue areas that I now work at LASNY on. It was judiciary and housing, human services, all of these committee projects that allowed me to have a real working knowledge of the legislative process, how to read and understand the bills that were moving through 
and where to find the dollars in the budget and how to understand the budget process. And those are all really, really, really helpful um, in my position now as ED at LASNI. One of the things that we see in our society is that lawyers are picked on tremendously until you need one. Then a lawyer becomes very valuable, but not everyone can afford a lawyer. So are we in a situation where we don't and still haven't come close to equal representation under the law? Absolutely. The vast majority of people facing legal issues do not have an attorney to help them. And that's, um, you know, even higher in the civil legal issue area. Our uh, our organization serves low income people. So it's free legal services for low income people. They are um, the most at risk of being evicted or facing foreclosure. Um, but they also have sort of the fewest resources to um, exercise their rights and protect um, protect their their um, livelihoods. Their even to appeal decisions for you know disability, for example, or how to put together an application to apply for disability assistance. So we're working with people who are really the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, and the least uh, able to access legal services. And um, you know, there's this sort of philosophical movement around the civil Gideon that people who can't afford an attorney who are facing these. Um, you know, life-changing legal issues, divorces, custodies, evictions, right, um, should have access to attorneys. Unfortunately, you know, legal aid attorneys face similar challenges to public defenders. Our salaries are well below the median salaries for uh, people who are practitioners who are licensed attorneys. And in Albany, it's more acute because we have so much competition for public service positions. We have government options and opportunities at every level of government sure. that really um, drive up the median um, salary ranges that are really hard for legal aides to compete with. We're entirely grant funded. So let me ask you something, because you mentioned below the poverty. What's that mean? What's that income level that would qualify you for free legal services? So our federal requirements require us to serve people at 125% federal poverty level. It's set uh, by the government under HUD regulations. For a single person, I think that's around $13,000. For a family of four, it's in the you know, mid-20s, it's very low income. New York State has additional funding that allows us to serve people up to the 200,000, I'm sorry, 200% uh, federal poverty level. Sure. So that's higher, but it's still well below middle income, right? It's it's still poor. It's still very low income people. So, so. that's the level. But then the question is, and I think this is part of why not only do I want to talk to you, but want to get your perspective on this, is awareness. Now, so many of these folks who are poor, who are under this poverty line that would be able to get free legal services, I'm guessing many don't even know you exist. We serve 16 counties in upstate New York. We have positions for about 110 staff. But what that means is much of our service area is rural. It's remote. Um, we don't have, we have six offices, so clearly not offices in every county that we serve. Many of our attorneys are traveling two or, two or three hours to go to court for the one client in that county. So, you know, there's a lot of unmet need here, um, and closing the justice gap is a significant goal and focus in, in New York State, but it will take a lot of resources to really achieve that. 
What about the rest of the state? So there's the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. Are there other legal aid societies across the state that also are there for the rest of the New Yorkers listening? Yep. So under the Legal Services Corporation for LSC-funded legal aid societies like mine, um, we all have a service area. So we kind of carve up the state in those service areas. Okay. And then in addition, there are other legal service providers. So here in the Capital Region, for example, we have LASNI, the organization I'm at, but we also have Empire Justice Center. We we have the legal project, we have prisoner legal services. So there is a, a bit of a patchwork of um, of legal help that people can access in Albany. In more rural areas, it, there's much less um, access and much less opportunity. So it's, it's more challenging for somebody, even in the capital region, if you are in um, Amsterdam or where we do have an office, but I you know, there's not a lot of other legal services there except for ours. Um, and then you have um, even closer to the capital region, Rensselaer has very little um, access to legal services. So there is a, an interest at, at the state level in the legislature and in the governor's office to expand access to um, legal representation, especially focused on eviction prevention. There's um, there are a number of legislative policies that are being considered. There's right to counsel. There's a good cause. There's you know, there are. Um, efforts to try to ensure that people have access to legal assistance when they're facing evictions. And um, our program uh, offers several other types of legal support, but the eviction need is so acute that that does tend to be um, the focus of most conversations right now. Well, let's go there. Let's not avoid it. Let's talk about this. I remember Jimmy McMillan, I believe he ran for governor at one point, and he said, the rent is too damn high. And <laughs> You know, it's a diverse state. You know, depending on where you are, you're in New York City, you're going to pay a heck of a lot more for rent than you do in Albany. We know that. We know that discrepancy. But then again, the salaries tend to be a little higher. However, if you're poor, you're poor. And no matter where you are, the rent could be so high, it could force you onto the street. So how do we ensure? In other words, I guess what we're talking about philosophically is housing a basic right for a human being. I mean, I, I have to say it is, right? I mean, you need to have a place to live in order to achieve any sense of success in your lifetime, right? Stability is critical to childhood outcomes. It's critical to success in education. It's critical to a number of things. And what I would note is right now we're in this kind of precarious situation because there were rent freezes during the pandemic. Once the pandemic uh, protections expired, rents jumped significantly, sort of catching up on kind of three years of pause. Then we're also, because the protections preventing evictions expired, uh, the rate of eviction proceedings started to spike. They're not they're getting close to pre-pandemic levels, but they're they're coming up very quickly. At the same time, um, salaries have not been keeping up with the cost of living or the cost of rent. And um, we were there's a, 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 a article out in the New York Times um, on research that uh, found that kids and households with kids under five are the highest risk of eviction uh, in rental housing and that um, a household that has kids under five are just the most likely to be evicted. And that rate is even higher in households of color and especially um, for uh, kids who have um, parents who are African-American or, or moms who are black actually is what they focus on. So we have these this kind of confluence of, you know, increases in rents, 
sort of stagnant salaries in a lot of ways, and then households, especially parents, struggling to find childcare, struggling to hold down jobs that can make sure they can pay their rent. And then the article, the study also focused on discrimination against people who have kids because a lot of landlords don't want to rent to families that have small kids. They cause some damage. They're louder. They run around. You know, they're kids. They do things that kids do. And so, it, and it's and landlords, very... you know, landlords do size you up. Who may be trying to skirt rules or do things to maximize their profit, not really caring about the people involved. Yeah, I mean, I think landlords would say it's not their job to house everybody. Their job and their revenue comes from housing, renting to people who will. Uh, bring in a higher return on investment. And so if you're renting to families that have kids, that means you're doing a lot more repairs, right? Or um, you're renting to a household that in their mind, their bias, right, thinks that that household's going to need to be evicted and evictions are very expensive. So they will try to avoid um, renting to somebody they think is likely to fall behind in rent at some future point, right? And that's their analysis. And and on a business side, I, I understand the analysis. It, it, Me too. I was playing devil's advocate. I mean, I think what our focus is really is on helping communities grow their housing stock so that there are, you know, it's a supply and demand. If there are more apartments available to rent, it will help keep the cost of those apartments down because there's more supply. The demand is not going up as quickly once you kind of hit kind of a sweet spot. And you do see a number of policies out of the state to encourage communities to allow more development. Of course- Pardon me for interrupting. Were you very supportive of the governor's proposal for housing that kind of failed in the legislature? I mean, they're still looking at this issue, but it was a pretty grand plan. It it ran up against local zoning issues and local politicians and others saying, no, 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 not not, not here. You're not going to do that here. But do you see that issue eventually being dealt with by the legislature? Yeah, absolutely. I do think that zoning reform and smart growth are is is has to be part of the conversation for solving the uh, rent and eviction problem. There's a number of issues that sort of overlay. So if you are low income and you uh, have a housing voucher, that voucher can be used at an apartment that has these sort of criteria, you know, how high the rent can be, blah, blah, blah. But if you have a kid who's under six, it also has to pass a lead inspection. And so if you are in a rural community or anywhere else and you- In 2023. In 2023, but but many of these uh, old housing stock can pass a lead inspection, right? So, so- That's what I was saying. In other words, in 2023, we're still dealing with getting lead right. out of buildings. Right. And the rate of lead is higher in old stock, which is also where, you know, which is the most affordable housing stock. So if we aren't encouraging new development, we aren't encouraging and helping property owners mitigate their lead, right, encapsulate their lead or whatever, the options for where a low income household can live, especially if they have kids, is 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 very, very limited. So zoning reform is and has to be part of that discussion. Smart development, transit-oriented development, these policy uh, ideas are part of the solution to the very low vacancy rate, the difficulty in finding affordable housing and um, reducing the impact and um, vulnerability of low-income people facing evictions. Put a face on this for us, Nick Rangel, the executive director of Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York, for someone who your organization has helped through a difficult tenant-landlord situation. 
We have a housing eviction project in all of our offices here in the Capital Region. We also um, have some community lawyering opportunities that have come to us where we're working with tenant groups to help prevent um, uh, entire buildings from being from evicting uh, all of their tenants. And there's a number of really complicating factors there. One is that um, it you know displacing tenants. Um, disrupts that person's right their their life and their livelihoods um it just it uh also disrupts the kids school years uh when somebody has to move in the middle of a school year uh and it disrupts whole communities i mean communities are usually really tight-knit you know your neighbors you uh you rely on each other for help and support and assistance and and in these buildings we're we're talking about um several households just having to relocate in a housing market that does not have available affordable housing for people to move to. So, um, you know, Legal Aid's very uh, involved and we're we're working with some local electeds and the attorney general's office and trying to find a solution there. So you help try to identify those housing potential opportunities where people can go or how does that work? We are focused on trying to prevent the displacement of those people to keep them in, in, in the place, in the where, place they where they are, if they cannot stay in the place that they are, and this is true for other um, eviction cases as well, we do help um, households try to find new housing. We um, identify funding assistance, so security deposits, moving help, okay. that kind of help. And then you know we work with the agencies to if we have to do a lead inspection or a lead inspection has to happen. So we do we do kind of work with the tenant from the point that they're facing an eviction to the point where they are either stable or have found new housing. Well, let's remind folks that you can learn more if you're in need of any legal aid services. You can go to their website, www.lasnny.org. And we're talking with Nick Rangel, the executive director of the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. It dawns on me, Nick, that we see the same problem with law that we see in many other areas, whether it's health or the environment or education. And when I'm speaking of law and legal issues, I'm talking about the fact that there are many more cases than there are lawyers available. And that, just like with the environment, you can pass all the environmental laws you want, but if you don't have enforcement, you're not going to stop the pollution from happening. So aren't we in this really weird gap that we just don't have enough lawyers to help the numbers of people that require it? Absolutely. So... Right. We have one law school in the capital region. It is a feeder school to all the government uh, agencies. Um, You know, there are more attorney positions in the capital region than there are law students being turned out at Albany Law. And it does make it very, very difficult. Um, We do try to recruit attorneys from out of the area. We have pretty excellent benefits at Legal Aid. We will help people with moving costs and all sorts of things. But the challenge, as I mentioned earlier, is that getting those salaries and into something that's more competitive is pretty tough in a nonprofit setting. You know, it, it kind of ties into like this student loan discussion, too. So I um, went to UAlbany. Yeah. I uh, got out of UAlbany with very low student debt, which was incredible and and. Um, a real credit to UAlbany. I also went to Hudson Valley Community College that helped keep my um, my student debt low. But coming to law school and grad school, my student debt just skyrocketed, right? Sure, you like, went to a private it like, institution. It was like 200 grand, yeah, right? Um, yeah, and sure. so I did do, I was lucky enough to um, 
choose the public interest loan forgiveness program, and I was one of those was people. Was that for kind of going thought, into a public interest field? Was, yep. Okay. Yeah. So there's um, a number of repayment plans um, under Fed loans. One of them is for people who go into public service, and so if you do public service for 10 years and you make the eligible payments for 120 payments and all this stuff. And then at various points, my payments weren't counted for, you know, whatever reasons, or there was gap in like collecting the employment verification and all these things. So the period of my forgiveness just kept getting a little bit longer and longer. And I was like, man, I'm never going to, this is never going to get forgiven. Um, I will say that under the Biden public service loan forgiveness initiatives and the window in the last couple of Mm -hmm. years that allowed people to get into the program and catch up on those payments. And then the student loan pause during the pandemic, I was a beneficiary of the forgiveness program, which was incredible. But what I mean to say is that it can be prohibitively expensive for people to go to law school. And I counsel students who are thinking about law school on this a lot that you really have to think, okay, I want to do public service. I'm committed to, you know, access to justice, but how am I going to pay for it? Empire Justice Center has an education project that helps people navigate the student loan repayment process and helps them plan, you know, short term and long term how they're going to pay off their student loans. But it is such a big part of why we have a shortage of attorneys. I wonder if you were, you know, anointed ruler of all and you could make the decision as to how to fix this problem. I'm guessing you've thought about it very deeply over your lifetime. And now (laughs) as the executive director, you think about it every day. But if there is a way to solve this problem in your mind, what would it be? What would some of the elements of that solution be? Which problem? The student loan problem, the lack of attorneys, or the need for civil legal services? So many problems. I I think what I'm referring to is how do we make sure that everyone gets good representation in our country and has a lawyer that's available to them, not based out of charity, not based out of a nonprofit that performed to help, but that because they're legitimate human beings and need to be taken care of in our society. Yeah, the civil Gideon push, which is kind of, I think, being called really kind of a right to counsel uh, initiative, envisions a world where um, our our state government is funding an office that ensures that people who cannot afford an attorney and are facing, um, in this case, in this particular bill, it's eviction, but other uh, legal issues have access to 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 an attorney in the way that public defenders are available to low-income people facing incarceration, right? So, um, you know, that's that's the solution. And until and until we have that kind of political will and the fi- funding to do that. Um, it's legal services that are 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 doing the work to close that justice gap. And other than nonprofits like yours, the actual poor folks in our society don't have their own lobbying group that gives donations. Right. And, you know, my organization, we don't lobby, um, but we do right. work to inform um uh, lawmakers on what's happening on the ground, what's happening happening in courts, why it's important that um, 
and how attorneys kind of unclog the legal system, right? Having an attorney in court reduces the chances of being evicted, but it also helps the courtroom itself function better because the attorney understands the options. They have the resources to um, negotiate, to mediate between the uh, the litigant and, in this case, if it's eviction, the landlord, for example. And so it's really an investment in the civil legal like the civil legal justice system Mm. is to ensure that people have access to attorneys to just help the process um, and and help these cases move forward, kind of unclog the courtrooms. I mean, it would be a very expensive under undertaking and, uh, and it would be it would take some time to roll out. The right to counsel program in New York City was rolled out by zip code um, over the course of several years, but it has shown the tremendous benefit of having um, a right to counsel uh, option for um, eviction cases and preventing displacement um, at a at a pretty crucial level. It's it's very impressive. She is Nick Rangel, the executive director of the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. That's L-A-S-N-N-Y dot O-R-G to find out more. And you do so much more. And we're basically almost out of time. But I do want to mention another issue you deal with, which is tragic that our society has this problem, which is domestic violence. And so many women, and there are men as well, need help. And they can go to you for that help, can't they? Yes. We have a number of different programs and projects available that serve um, you know, various sort of legal issues, civil legal issues. Um, in the family law program, we do assist people who are facing um, domestic violence in the home and intimate partner violence. And it's important to sort of note that domestic violence and intimate partner violence impacts the ability of people to navigate custody issues, child support issues, um, uh, uh, I guess marital support, right? Um, and, and so we, we help families and our clients navigate all of those, those pieces. And I can imagine that you are impacted. I mean, when you see a woman or a man come in who's been abused and what the impact is on that family and you're now entering that to create a solution, I can only imagine it's a mixed set of emotions that you have. You know, there's a certain pride in what you're doing, but the idea that you have to do this is hard to deal with, isn't it? Like, I love public service, and my call to public service has been decades in, in building. And the team that works on the family law unit are dealing with some of the hardest, most emotionally charged um, legal issues, right? Uh, and it was interesting. I Somebody was talking about how we're counselors at law, but oftentimes we're called to be counselors. And it does take a toll. I have so much respect um, for the attorneys who do this kind of work and who serve these vulnerable populations. And, you know, it would be hard to say that one program faces more challenging issues than another program, but the DV program is really critical for stabilizing families and helping people get out of abusive situations. We barely scratched the surface, and there's so much more to talk about with Nick Rangel, the executive director of the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. Don't worry, Central New York, Western New York, Southern New York, New York City, you have your branches as well. And I think the best thing that you can do is to make people aware, if they don't know, that there are free legal services beyond the criminal justice public defender that you're appointed, and you can reach out for help. www.lasnny.com. Dot org. Nick Rangel, you get the last word. 
So for your listeners, you can find the legal help in your community by going to lawhelpny.org and putting your zip code into the search bar. It will bring you to all of the legal services available in your region, uh, lawhelpny.org. Nick Rangel, again, I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on The Capital Connection. Thank you very much. Support for The Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative. 